Morning Capshaw. I'm April, and this is your weekly In the Know. If you are a guest, we want to thank you for joining us this morning. If you haven't already done so, please fill out the Connect card located in the seat back in front of you and drop it in the offering bucket later in the service. Now, let's talk about a couple things going on around campus. Thank you to all of our wonderful church members who stayed and helped with our campus flip last week. Because over 100 of you sacrificed your time, our campus will be a more welcoming and inviting place for visitors and for those who attend our church. Thank you, Capshaw. Capshaw will host our annual church-wide Thanksgiving lunch on November 24th following the service. Everyone is asked to bring two large side dishes and a two-liter drink to share with everyone. Capshaw will provide the main meat entree. Lunch will be served in the Family Life Center. We hope to see you there. On Sunday, December 8th, following the worship service, our pastors will host Pizza with the Pastors. This is your chance to get to know the pastors of Capshaw in an informal setting. For more information and to RSVP by December 4th, visit capshaw.org events. Before we leave, here's a quick reminder. There are many things that you can do at capshaw.org. You can get general information, register for upcoming events, as well as give. If you have any specific questions, you can always email us at info at capshaw.org. Capshaw, have a great week. Good morning, friends. Let's stand and worship together. want to be close, close to your side, so heaven is real, and death is a lie. I want to hear voices of angels above, singing as one, hallelujah, holy, holy God Of the name, King of Majesty, there is no power. 
Uh, good morning, church family. Aren't you glad that we don't worship a puny God, but a God who is the great I am, the one before whom all the powers on hell and earth flee, the one who said the word and the world was made. Uh, hope you had a good week, uh, church family. been praying for you and thinking about you this week. If you're new with us, if you're a guest, we're really glad you're here. We're, we're happy that you decided to join us, and we hope that you feel uh, welcome and, and warmly received. Um, if you would be kind enough to fill out the communication card in front of you, gives us a chance just to get to know you a little bit, and we'd love to pray for you if that's something that you would like us to do. If you are a guest with us, we hope that uh, you found where you needed to go okay. And I say that because we're in the middle of a sort of a campus flip uh, remodel, and if you had kids, uh, you may have had to take them to a different place today, so please uh, forgive us if it's been kind of confusing. This should... Uh, we're trying to make more room for our growing number of kids, and we praise God that we have uh, more kids to disciple. Uh, in fact, speaking of kids, I heard something the other day. I, I, I heard a man uh, who's actually a doctor talking about his daughter had broken her arm. And uh, if, you've, if you're a parent and you've ever had one of your kids uh, you know, break any bones, I've had kids break arms and collarbones and so on. It's a most helpless feeling. But this, this dad was talking about taking his daughter to the emergency room, and on the way there, he heard her reciting some of the things that, he, that she had learned, some of the truths about God that she had learned by way of catechism. Uh, we, want, we want our kids to think the right things about God, and we want to think the right things about God. So one of the things we do is, is catechism, which is a way of impressing upon our hearts and minds uh, truths about God. Uh, so we're going to, if you've been around, you know how this works. If, if you're new with us, just kind of follow along. I'll read the question, and then together we all recite uh, the answer. So this is from the New City Catechism. Question number 49 reads, Where is Christ now? Christ rose bodily from the grave on the third day after his death and is seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling his kingdom and interceding for us until he returns to judge and renew the whole world. What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? Christ triumphed over sin and death by being physically resurrected so that all who trust in him are raised to new life in this world and to everlasting life in the world to come. Just as we will one day be resurrected, so this world will one day be restored, but those who do not trust in Christ will be raised to everlasting death. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension? Christ physically ascended on our behalf just as he came down to earth physically on our account, and he is now advocating for us in the presence of his Father, preparing a place for us, and also sends us his Spirit. All right, our final question for this morning, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? It reminds us that this present fallen world is not all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed 
resurrection bodies and a renewed, restored creation. Praise God for that. Let's continue in worship.
Uh, go ahead and have a church uh, seat, church family, if you would. Have a church uh, seat family. Uh, it's easy to preach good news after uh, singing like that, isn't it? What a great uh, worship set. Thank you so much, worship team. Uh, let's uh, continue our, our worship as we pray and look at God's word together. Pray with me, if you would. A Father in heaven, we're so thankful that we have this not just strong, but a perfect plea in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are with us even this morning. And sometimes when we, when we think about you, when we talk about you, even when we sing about you, it's, it's almost as if we think you are in the distance and you're far removed from us and our struggles and our joys and our, our lives, but we know that's not the case. Uh, we know that you're with us uh, even now. We praise you for that. We want to pray for those among us who are sick, those who are suffering from cold or flu or congestion or any other number of uh, ailments. We pray that you would bring about swift uh, healing and recovery to them. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would give us the ability, the strength, the grace to understand uh, your word this morning and to approach your word, not just as those who would hear it, but as those who would do it, those who would respond in humble worship. Uh, bless our time this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you have uh, your Bible, if you would turn with me to John chapter 12, uh, we are in the middle of a uh, series called The Good Shepherd. We're looking at uh, the person of Jesus through the Gospel of John. We're kind of working our way through uh, John section by section and, uh, and, and hearing from the Lord as we do so. Uh, we'll be covering this morning verses 1 through 11 of John chapter 12. One of the lessons that my parents taught me growing up, in fact, uh, this was a, a regular sort of statement by them, regular piece of instruction was this, be practical, be practical. In fact, the question that I heard maybe more often than any other question as a young adult was, why would you want to do that? That's not practical. When I wanted to finance a new sports car on my 16th birthday, I was persuaded instead to use the $950 that I was going to use for a down payment to actually buy a 1977 uh, Ford Granada, green and white, had green vinyl interior, and uh, it was more practical. And to be fair, it, it, it served me well. Um, a couple of years before that, when I was into the BMX scene, um, I actually went to a friend of mine and I traded my entire bike for the frame uh, of a mongoose. Now, if you, unless you grew up in the 80s, you might not know what I'm talking about here, but mongoose was a really big deal then. So I traded my whole bike for just the frame, a mongoose frame. No seat, no wheels, no pedals, no handlebars. And because I didn't have a bike, I, have a bike, I had to walk home with it. So as I walked down my street with my mongoose frame over my shoulder, I just knew what my parents were going to say to me. Like, that is so impractical. Why would you do that? Uh, when I thought about starting a number of new businesses when I was late, uh, later in my teens, um, I heard that again. That just doesn't make sense. And, you know, I actually have come to appreciate uh, my parents' advice on that um, as a bit of a risk taker myself and uh, more of an adventurer than, than my parents. Um, that, was, that was something I needed to hear. There's a, there's a place for being practical, being wise, and so on. But as we continue to work our way through the Gospel of John, and we look at this story this morning of 
really one of devotion and betrayal, we're going to see that sometimes being a Christian means throwing practicality out the window. In fact, today we're going to see why the kingdom of God isn't reserved for the practical, but for the wasteful, at least in terms of uh, human perspective. Last week we looked at one of the most incredible miracles in the Bible. Jesus goes to a funeral and he actually raises the dead man back to life. Um, he, he speaks the man's name and just like the mummy in Scooby-Doo, he, the man comes out of the tomb with the linen all wrapped around him. He goes out, the King James tells us he stinketh at that point, and he goes out with the people and he's brought to life. And instead of this being a, a very celebratory thing, instead of this being just an incredible moment, it actually makes the religious leaders angry. In fact, it was this event, this very event, that triggered the Jewish ruling council to plot to kill Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead, which, of course, would increase his following, which in their minds would threaten their religious freedom under Rome's authority. Now, the religious leaders were furious at Jesus for a long time before that. We know that. We've seen multiple times where they wanted to stone Jesus. But this was the catalyst. We might say this was the very last straw. This is all they could handle as it relates to Jesus. Now they would be relentless in seeking Jesus' death. We, we read what happened after this miracle took place in John 11 last week. We saw that. John eleven fifty three 53 tells us, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Everything that John records from this point on will actually point to the Passion Week of Christ, the death of Jesus. And Jesus himself will start talking about that upcoming death, that looming death in earnest. So John chapter 12, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord reads this way. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here we are. This is, we're on the verge of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And everything really, it's amazing that John spends really almost half of his gospel in the last week of Jesus' life. It's, it's, we're coming up on that last earthly week of Jesus. We're days away from one of Jerusalem's biggest festivals, the Passover, in the Hebrew, the Pesach, which was a time when they would remember God's deliverance of them. And in the middle of this time, um, Jesus returns to Bethany, which he, he knew already there were people who wanted to kill him there. Um, but he goes there. And he goes to the house where Lazarus and Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, they live. And, and those three disciples will throw Jesus a party. They're celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus with this huge feast, this huge dinner. Now, I've been to some big birthday parties. I'm sure you have as well. I was at a, a fun one just a couple of weeks ago. I've been to some pretty incredible anniversary celebrations, even 50 years, 60 years once. So I've been to some of those big, uh, those big shindigs. Um, I've been to, of course, many wedding receptions, having officiated many weddings. Um, I've been to housewarming parties. I've been to all kinds of parties. But what kind of party do you throw for a resurrection? 
What kind of cake do you bake for a resurrection? I mean, everything has to be big, right? This person was formerly dead, and now he is alive. What kind of decorations do you put up for a resurrection party? This has got to be a tremendous event. The British theologian Brooke Westcott argues that given the nature of this occasion and the, and the language here, this feast would have easily rivaled the wedding feast at Cana. It says that was a big deal on the heels of the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, as we get toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, this feast would have easily rivaled that. And what's Lazarus doing? He's right in the middle of it, of course. Naturally, he's kicked back, he's reclining at the table, and he's with Jesus thinking of nothing else, it would appear. Now, let me ask you, how do you feel when you get back from being away from work for a week? Maybe you feel like I do. You, you've been away from work for seven days, totally unplugged, no emails, no cell phone, zero communication. You think, this is going to be really a nightmare when I get back. All the emails, and i got to get back to work on that project. i got to catch up with the voicemails. i gotta, I got a stack of paperwork to look through. Well, Lazarus has just experienced the ultimate in being out of pocket, Right? I mean, he's, this is the ultimate of being out of the office. He's actually been on the other side. He's been dead for three days. And before that, we know he's, he was sick for at least, at least four days before that. So, so seven full days of totally being incommunicado. There's no communication here with Lazarus at all. So you might think, I might think that when he returns, he's got a lot of work to do. This was an agrarian society where a lot of times people got paid for their labor at the end of the day. So maybe he's thinking, I've got so much to catch up on. I've got a lot of work that I've got to catch up on. I'm behind on my finances. I've got a lot of stuff to do. But when Lazarus is brought back to life, he doesn't think about any of that stuff. He doesn't think I've got a lot of income to make up. He's with Jesus, God in the flesh, the very I am that we just sang about. And Lazarus says, forget all that other stuff. Let's celebrate. He's with his Savior, the God-man, and he does nothing. John tells us he's just reclining at the table. He's feasting. This is not a very practical approach. Now, here's the first point I want you to see. Wasting time in celebration of Jesus, his person and his work, is the heart of worship. It's the heart of worship. Now, notice I put wasting in quotation marks. It's not really a poor use of our time, but by all appearances, we're not being very productive, are we? Here we are, there are, I don't know, a few hundred of us in this room, and we've just been singing songs together and reciting Scripture together, and now we're looking at God's Word together. There are a lot of other things that we could be doing that would seem to be much more practical. We could be out cleaning up a neighborhood park. We could be out feeding the homeless. Uh, we could be out helping other people move. We, well, there are a lot of things we could be doing, and even things we could be doing individually. We could be at home uh, cleaning the house, we could be doing some landscaping, we could be finishing up that project that's been sort of languishing that we haven't gotten around to. There are all kinds of things we could be doing, but here we are sitting together in a room singing songs together to God. Now, there, again, those other things are, are, are not bad things. In fact, some of the, those things are actually noble things. One of the things that unbelievers will often think about believers, that is those who, who, who don't follow Christ, they, they think about those who follow Christ, is they have a hard time understanding why we would give up half a day on Sunday, one of the, the two days off we get a week, again, to gather together and just sort of study an old book. 
Well, when we gather together as believers on the Lord's Day, or really any other time, we are by default neglecting to do a lot of other things, but by wasting, simply wasting time with Jesus, we're actually worshiping Him, celebrating His goodness, reflecting on His attributes. We're actually worshiping Him. Author and worship theologian Marva Dawn says, Worship is idolatry unless it's a total waste of time in earthly terms, a total immersion in the eternity of God's infinite splendor for the sole purpose of honoring God. In other words, if we worship God, if you come here this morning, you gather together for the sake of anything other than giving glory to our King and celebrating His power and beauty and holiness and salvation... If we worship God in order to get something from Him, to twist His arm, as it were, we're actually not worshiping at all. We're serving our own ends, making ourselves ultimate, which is actually idolatry. Now, there's no doubt that Lazarus and Mary and Martha, for that matter, had plenty of other things to do. Again, Lazarus had been out of commission. But he knows that there's nothing better that he could be doing at that very moment than spending it with Jesus celebrating and exalting the God-man. And, and if we think about it, if we're really honest with ourselves, isn't it pride that really leads us to believe that if we stop working for a minute, the world is going to fall apart? I mean, it, it, and I've been hit by this on my own sense of pride. I'll go on vacation, and, and, and the whole time I'm thinking about church and how are things going to go, and I realize what an arrogant, faithless perspective. Isn't it arrogance that causes us to believe that everything is hanging on us and our abilities? I wonder if God doesn't look down on us sometimes and think, why do they always have to be accomplishing something? It's a decidedly Western way of thinking, by the way. People in other parts of the world don't think this way. You go to the African continent, you go to other places on the other side, the Western side of the world, People are much more inclined to just enjoy each other. They're not always looking at their clocks. Columbia University professor and New York Times book reviewer uh, Perul Segal writes, the most purely, profoundly American genre of writing might be the to-do list. And I think that's right. Now, don't get me wrong. I I love to-do lists. I'm constantly mocked by my own family because I put everything I do on the list, sometimes after I do it so I can cross it off. But I like to-do lists, and they help me stay in line. They help me stay uh, on task. But I wonder if our penchant for production has robbed us of peace. I wonder if our enslavement to our devices and our to-do lists has actually robbed us from joy. I think one reason we have such a hard time wasting time with God, so to speak, be it in worship, in prayer, in silence is because we are so performance-driven. Our very identity is so tied to our accomplishments that if we're not doing something, every moment we feel like failures. We can tolerate just about anything except wasting our time. Now, I'm not advocating laziness. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be about doing good works. We should. We were created to do good works, but not as a way to earn our salvation. Instead, because we are so incredibly grateful to God that our love and devotion to Him manifests in radical, even impractical devotion. Now look at verse 3 again. 
Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now I want to pause there for a moment because this is so interesting. Mary does the unthinkable here on multiple levels. First of all, that she even washed Jesus' feet was a remarkable thing. Washing someone's feet in antiquity, in, in Jesus' day, was reserved for the lowest of the low. This was for the slaves. This was for the servants. Because, as you might imagine, a person walked around in sandals all day. Their feet got pretty dirty. And these were the same dirt roads on which stray animals would travel and also relieve themselves. So, so feet got pretty dirty in a, in a hurry, and, and, and it was a really a disgusting thing. There was nothing sort of glamorous about washing someone's feet. Or this, the first Air Jordans hadn't come along yet, and so the, the people wore sandals, and their feet got dirty. Again, this is why it was such a disgusting thing. I, there was a couple that I married a few years ago where the guy asked me if he could incorporate into the ceremony uh, the washing of his wife's feet as an act of, of service to her. And uh, I thought about it, and, and it, you know, it sounded like he was being sincere, although he was a little over-eager about it, to be honest, but um, reluctantly I agreed. Um, well, when the ceremony actually took place, this man didn't want to stop washing his wife's feet. That segment took longer than the homily, longer than communion, longer than the vows. Finally, I had to lean over to him and say, dude, like, they're clean already. Just, we got to get back to, to work here. He didn't want to stop. It was a very glamorous thing for him. Well, foot washing in Jewish custom was not so cute. There, were certainly, there was certainly nothing romantic about it, but... but when done voluntarily by a non-servant, in other words, when someone said, I, I want to do this for you, we'll see this later in Jesus' own example, it was an act of humility and an act of loving devotion. And Mary washes Jesus' feet. And that's just the start of it. That's just where she starts. She also dries his feet with her hair, which was also a scandalous notion. That a, a Jewish woman would even touch a man and that day was scandalous, but to actually Dry his feet with her hair was off the charts. A woman's hair was her glory, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11. New Testament scholar Craig Keener writes, to use her prized hair to wipe Jesus' feet when normally only servants even touch the master's feet indicates the depth of her humble submission to and affection for Jesus. Mary loves Jesus. Not in a romantic way, in a passionate way, in a self-giving way. So she washes Jesus' feet, uses her hair to dry them. She pours out this expensive ointment. We'll get, more, we'll get to that in just a moment. Everything Mary does here, frankly, is so extra. It's, it's not necessary. It goes beyond what would be reasonable. In fact, the other gospel writers record a version of the story, and they suggested that, that, that Mary may have started by anointing Jesus' head and then anointing his feet, while the other disciples looked on in disgust and derision. In fact, one of the other gospel writers tells us that the disciples were really upset by this. They told her to basically knock it off. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This doesn't make sense. This is so impractical, Mary. This doesn't seem reasonable. John actually records that, and we're going to see this in a moment, that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, is indignant. He's furious over this. Everybody's telling Mary to chill out. Everybody's telling Mary to take it back a notch, to stop doing what she's doing. But Mary doesn't care. 
She is completely undeterred. She is overwhelmed with gratitude, which overflows in impractical devotion. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Jesus actually says in one of the other gospel accounts, she's done a beautiful thing. Here's our second point this morning. Resting in Christ's approval is the only recipe for lasting joy. Everybody says, Mary, what are you doing? Have you lost your mind here? This is so over the top. Mary, she's not slowed down by it at all. Now, wherever wherever we are, whatever we do, whatever you do for a vocation, regardless of where you are or, or, or how old you are or, or, or what you do, our approval ratings, so to speak, are always going to vacillate. They're going to they're go up and down. Sometimes people love us. They think we're the greatest thing. Sometimes people, they can't stand us. And that's kind of the way that it is living in a broken world. So, so our approval rating goes up and down with our coworkers, with our kids, with our neighbors, with our boss, and sometimes even with our spouse. We do one thing, and we're, the, we're amazing. We're the best. Whatever. You're the best husband. You're the best wife. You're the most amazing kid. You're the greatest whatever. And then we make one other decision just shortly thereafter, and we're the scum of the earth. How could you do this to me? Don't you love me? Don't you care about me? Why would you do such a thing to me? To put it in uh, today's parlance, haters are going to hate. That's the way it works. And critics are going to criticize. And some people were never going to please. Several years ago, this is at a different church. When I started as a new pastor at this church, I had a lady who served as my administrative assistant who'd been at the church for many years, decades. And for whatever reason, she didn't like me. She was not a fan. Uh, I was never going to be as good as my predecessor, and she let me know it. I was never going to be the scholar he was. I was never going to be the, the leader he was. I was never going to be the fashion icon he was. I was never going to measure up to him. And, and she, in very subtle ways, made it very clear that I was falling way short of her expectations. Now, of course, uh, naturally, that stung a little bit. I mean, I, that hurt a little bit. Um, I wanted to do whatever I could to, to being brand new to that church to get her to like me. I, I didn't want to have to deal with the, the tension every day and sort of the passive-aggressive, subtle dislike, but I couldn't, I couldn't resolve it. I, I couldn't uh, get her to like me. And as I got to know her, though, I came to realize that it wasn't just me. Virtually everybody in her life fell short of her expectations except maybe the previous pastor. Other than that, everybody else fell short. And I came to realize as I got to know her um, over some time, she was very, very dysfunctional in the way that she dealt with people, very graceless. In fact, she was actually very unhealthy in her relationships. Now, I'm not saying that because she didn't like me, she was unhealthy. Uh, not everyone who dislikes me is unstable and dysfunctional. That's typically the way that it works. Um, she, she didn't like me. She wanted me to know. And, and I thought, well, what, what can I do? And I came to this point. I believe this was a revelation by the Holy Spirit. I, I asked myself two questions, and I, th- I think they're very helpful. Maybe they'll help you. I asked myself, the first question was, what would it cost me in order for me to get her to like me? I mean, what would the cost be? What, what, would I, what would I have to do in order to get her to like me? And this is the way it is. If, if, what is the cost of earning another person's approval? 
In other words, what do you have to become? If the other person is a gossip, then you have to become a gossip. If the other person is negative and always critical, then you have to become negative and always critical in order for that person to like you. If they're all about whatever it is, you have to be all about whatever it is to them. And the second question that I asked myself is, was, what would I gain if I actually was liked by them? I mean, what, what do I really get in the long run? So first of all, what cost do I have to pay? And then what do I actually gain? Let's say that all of a sudden this administrative assistant thought, you know what, actually you're as good as the last guy. You know, you're as good of a communicator, leader, fashionable, whatever. I mean, what have I actually, I haven't gotten anything. I really haven't gained anything. Because the first thing I do that, that she doesn't like, the first direction that I lead in, I'm, I'm going to be teetering again on the brink of her disapproval. And so, you know, what I realize is it, it's not really worth it. The cost is too high and the gain is too little to worry so much about the approval of other people. But what if we could have the approval of the one who created the world? Now, that would be a little different, wouldn't it? What if the one who laid the earth's foundations, who speaks and the storms obey his voice, who has the power to grant eternal life, what if he promised to us his unwavering acceptance and, in fact, his love for us? Now, that would, be, that would really be something. That would be different. This is exactly what God promises to those who are in Christ. For those who put their faith in Jesus, who trust in Him alone, they have the unending approval of the God of the universe. That doesn't mean that God approves of everything we do, but He completely approves of who we are because He sees us as those who are covered with the very righteousness of Jesus. The Apostle Paul makes this point beautifully in Romans chapter 4. He says this, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You know what blessed means in this context? It means approved. It means accepted. The Apostle Peter says this to all Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, God says, because you are mine, Adopted into my family, I see you through the eyes of grace. I chose you before the creation of the world to be my very own, to be holy and blameless. And I know that you're not holy and blameless in the way you live. I know that you fall short of my standard of perfection all the time. But I view you as holy and blameless because this is your position in my kingdom because of Christ. Now, how does that work, you say? Well, last week we, t we talked about and we looked at uh, what Caiaphas said and, and this whole idea of the, the substitutionary atonement, which is this great doctrine that Christians have held for centuries, this, this great exchange. What Jesus did on the cross, it, it was a swap. We ought to have died on the cross because of our sin and rebellion, re receiving God's punishment. 
But instead, Jesus died on the cross for us. He died and we live. It's sometimes called penal substitution. Penal comes from the word penalty. Substitution, again, just means swap. And so um, it was a penalty swap. Jesus received the penalty for our rebellion, and we received the benefit of his perfect obedience, which is a perfect standing before God. The Apostle Paul tells us, For our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus wasn't made to be sin in the ontological sense. In other words, he didn't just sort of hang on the cross as this big ball of sin. It's not what, what Paul's talking about. What, what he means is he became sin in that our sin was reckoned to him. It was put on him. He was counted guilty for it, for our sin, even though he himself never personally sinned. And we were counted, we were reckoned righteous by faith in his perfect obedience, even though we are far from obedient. We have sinned and failed. Salvation, pardon for sin, and a perfect standing before God comes to us by believing in what Jesus has done, not by doing anything ourselves. And that recognition leads us to, at times, what many would call very impractical worship. Mary had everyone around her telling her to knock it off, to stop lavishing her affections on Jesus. But Jesus said to her, what you're doing is a beautiful thing. And that to Mary was enough. Now look at verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So John tells us that the ointment that Mary poured out on Jesus was was made from pure nard. Now that's the word nard, which is kind of a funny word to us, was actually the short version of spike nard, which was um, an oil that came from the nard plant of northern India. So what we're being told here is that this this was an ointment, this was a perfume that came from... A, a, an oil that took a long way, to, it was from a long distance away. And this means that because of the scarcity of it and the labor that it took to get it, this perfume was very, very expensive. In fact, John tells us that it was worth 300 denarii. A denarius was one, roughly one day's wage. So 300 denarii would be roughly a year's wages. Can you imagine pouring out a year's worth of wages knowing that you cannot retrieve these again. You can't get it back. You can't take it from the ground or someone's hair or feet or whatever and put it back in the bottle. It's, it's uh, irrecoverable. Well, Judas couldn't imagine it. In fact, he's livid. It's not because he really cares about people or he's compassionate for those who are poor, but because the perfume, that perfume could have been sold for a lot of money, and that was money that he could have secretly dipped into and stolen. But, you know... There are people around, and he's got to keep up appearances, and so he wants to look compassionate. So he says, what a waste. What a waste this was. This money could have been sold and used to help the poor. Now look at how Jesus responds in verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with me, but you do not always have me. Now this is a that last statement, actually that whole paragraph, a couple of sentences is hard to explain, but the last statement is the toughest. It sounds heartless at best. 
Jesus saying, look, you're always going to have the poor with you? I mean, what does, he, what does he mean by that? Is Jesus suggesting that the poor are not important? Is he, is he arguing that, uh, that we shouldn't care about the poor and the helpless and needy around us? We know that's not the case. Jesus' earthly ministry was characterized by compassion for the poor and needy. Jesus' point is not that the poor are unimportant or that we should accept poverty as inevitable, not do anything about it, but that we'll always have other noble priorities that will compete for our time and our interests and our resources. There are always going to be other things we can do, always be other ways we can spend our time, and always other things that we can invest and pour our money into. But exalting Jesus while we can and advancing His kingdom now are more important than any other endeavors. And that's why this act, which is judged to be so impractical by Judas, is actually honored by Jesus. Here's our third point this morning. Wasting our resources on Christ and His kingdom reveals our true understanding of His identity. Now, you have to understand... At this point, even though Jesus has been with his disciples and he's had these huge crowds that have followed him and he's actually fed thousands of them and they've, they've watched him do miracles, they still don't really get it. They, just, they don't understand who he is. They don't know that he is the, 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 the foreshadowed one, the predicted Messiah. Now, I use wasting with quotation marks again because you won't find, I don't think, a financial broker or an advisor who says the wisest investment of your money is to give it away to a God that you can't see. It's not going to be considered sensible or practical. But when we recognize who Jesus is, and this, by the way, is, it's, it's a supernatural gift. We've seen this from John 3 and 6 and so on. Recognizing who Jesus is, the giving of our resources becomes actually the most reasonable thing we can do. Why would we hoard what God has given to us where we can actually pour it out for the advancement of His kingdom so that other people will come to hear and know this one true living God. Why else would somebody leave, why else would a 20-something leave this country and go to Asia or go to the Sudan or go to South Africa or go to a, a spiritually dead place like, like many of the places in Europe? Why would a person go of any age to another place, spend time, money, energy, and resources in an endeavor that maybe even looks like it's not yielding any results, it's because they understand something about Jesus. They recognize the identity of Jesus. Mary ignored social customs, agreed-upon etiquette, concerns about her personal appearance to lavish upon Jesus her affection and love by pouring out this extremely expensive ointment. Why? Because here's a woman... Unlike all the other disciples, unlike these, all these crowds of people, here's a woman who understands who Jesus is. Here's a one who recognizes this is the Messiah. This is actually the Savior of the world. This is the promised Redeemer, and such radical devotion is actually appropriate for such a Savior. The same really is true for us. When we understand who Jesus is, when, when, when we recognize the lengths to which He went to save us, taking on flesh, dying a cruel death, we understand what we've been forgiven of and what we've been given. We realize there's nothing we can give Jesus that would be too much. How could we possibly give 
too much to the one who's given us everything. Now, it's interesting the way the Apostle Paul comments on this whole concept of giving in the New Testament. He says, we're called to the grace of giving. He calls it a grace. Paul calls generosity a gift of grace. Now, why would he say that? Well, because when God works in us and and, and overwhelms us with His love, His mercy, His salvation, He then produces in us, as a consequence, a generosity, a desire to worship, a love for Him. In other words, generosity gives evidence of our union with Christ. Generosity gives evidence of our union with Christ because it's only Christ in us that enables anyone to give voluntarily, joyfully, or sacrificially. Judas doesn't know Jesus. I mean, we think about all that he's seen. I mean, he's been with Jesus for all this time, some three years, but he still doesn't know. His his eyes are still blind. His soul is still darkened. He still doesn't recognize that, that he's in front of and with the very Savior of the world. He's also so consumed with sin and self gain that he misses everything right in front of his eyes. Pastor Scotty Smith says this the contrast between Mary and Judas could not be bolder. Mary reclines at Jesus' feet in adoring love, offering extravagant devotion, anointing his feet. Judas sits in condescending arrogance not only questioning Mary's actions, but judging Jesus' willingness, willing acceptance of such a gift. One is a worshiper, one is a thief. One gives sacrificial honor, the other seeks personal gain. One demonstrates the way of grace, the other the way of sin. At this point in Jesus' ministry, the crowds are incredibly fickle. They're, they're up and down. They want Jesus, they want to follow Him, and they want nothing to do with Him. The religious leaders are confused and angry. They want someone to pay for this following that Jesus is garnering. But here's a woman who knows who Jesus is. She's seen his power and salvation. She believes and she worships him. And because of that understanding, which I want to say again, happens to all those who are in Christ, all those who have experienced God's grace, she's eager to give. Now let's wrap this up, verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Not only was Jesus in the crosshairs of the religious brass, but so now was Lazarus, because his very existence... The fact that he was actually alive testified to Jesus' power. It would only cause an increased number of people to follow him. So now Lazarus had to be killed. You can sense the desperation from the religious leaders. They will do anything before they will lose their honor, their prominence, and the respect of their people. Losing the respect of their people was something worth killing over. They could not go without it. Lazarus, on the other hand, he's partying. He doesn't care. He's not worried. People are out to kill him. There are all kinds of things he could be doing. He doesn't care. He's not worried at all. He's enjoying Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you feel exhausted and you feel like every day is a struggle and you never feel like, you feel like your head is underwater, you just can't satisfy people, you're up and then you're down again. Maybe, maybe your highs are really high and your lows are incredibly low. 
Now, maybe it's, because you're, maybe it's just because you're in a very busy season and, and you have so much on your plate and it's overwhelming. Maybe you just can't seem to get ahead. But maybe, maybe it's because you're not wasting time with Jesus in worship. Maybe you're holding so tightly to the, the reins of your own life. You, you want so desperately to be in control. Maybe it's because you've located your identity in your work in your parenting, in your career, in your appearance, in your success, rather than seeing yourself as God sees you, which is a son or daughter that he is very, very pleased with in Christ. Now, if you're not in Christ, God's not pleased with you this morning. In fact, you are actually under his condemnation. You're you're an object of his wrath. But it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to work it off. You don't have to resolve as soon as you leave here to go do this and that. No. You simply believe. Turn from your own sin. Turn from your own rebellion. Turn from your own independence. And trust in this Savior that we read about in the Scripture. The one who was predicted from old. The one the prophets foretold. The one the Gospels feature. The one the epistles reflect back on. The one the apocalyptic literature looks to His return. Believe in this Jesus, the God-man. And if you do that, regardless of what you're going through, you'll be able to say with all of us together, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a beautiful passage of Scripture. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for this body of believers, which is such a blessing to me personally, my family. Thank you that you have given us forgiveness in Christ. And Father, I want to pray this morning, if there's someone here who doesn't know Jesus, maybe they grew up in a Christian home, maybe they go to a Christian school, maybe they've been part of a church for 75 years, but they've never really turned in faith to Christ. Father, we appeal to you now through your Son that you might bring that person to saving faith. Enable us all as we rest in the finished work of Christ to sing in earnest, to sing with integrity and with joy. It is well, it is well with my soul. Stand together. Well with my soul.
Amen. Aren't we grateful that Jesus said it is finished so that it could be well for us? Amen. You may be seated. Uh, this morning, as Pastor John has mentioned, um, a sign of grace is, is generosity. And, and as we continue to, uh, to worship Jesus through giving back what's already His, we see in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as we enter into this time of thanksgiving, into the holiday season, 
my prayer is that we remain generous and we remain cheerful in, uh, in giving. So I'm going to ask that our ushers will come down. As Pastor John mentioned earlier as well, this is one of the first times you've visited with us. If you've got the Connect card, this will be the time that you could place in the offering bucket as it passes in front of you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your love for us. We're grateful for Jesus. And God, as we look back over what you've done for us, providing Jesus for us, God, we're just, my prayer is this season, as we, as we remain thankful, we remain thankful to you most of all. God, I pray for the, uh, for the offering we're about to take up. I pray that you'll use it to uh, impact, impact the globe for your kingdom. I'm encouraged at, as our church, as Capshaw, that, uh, that the sun never sets on ministry that's birthed from this church, God, through the, uh, through the offerings that, that are taken up in this room. We pray that you'll bless it. We pray for our missionaries that we support around the globe that you'll continue to, uh, continue to impact the kingdom through their ministries. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I hope you guys are as grateful that you are here to worship as I as I am. Uh, we're glad that you've joined us this morning. But before we uh, before we dismiss, before we get out of here, there's a few things I want to highlight that, uh, that that we definitely don't want you to uh, to miss out on. First off, if you are a middle schooler, high schooler, or if you're a parent of a middle schooler, high schooler, this Wednesday night uh, we have one of the craziest things we do all year long, where we're going to bowl with our frozen turkeys in light of the Thanksgiving season. So be sure that your students here at 6.30 on Wednesday night. We're going to still have our service. And then afterwards, we're going to have our turkey bowl. I told them I was going to throw that in there because they asked me to mention that next Sunday is our church-wide Thanksgiving lunch. And we want to make sure that you mark your calendars. Uh, we don't want you to miss out. It'll be immediately following the service. Pastor John has already promised to not go very long. You didn't promise that. Never mind. Anyways, we're going to have lunch right after service. 
but we want to invite you. We want to be sure that you are here, that you know about it. We ask that, uh, that, that your family provides two large side dishes and a two-liter drink. We will be providing the, uh, uh, the Thanksgiving meats. So you don't want to miss out. It's a time of fellowship. It's a great time to hang out with your church family. So make plans next Sunday after the service to join us uh, in, the, in the Family Life Center for our Thanksgiving lunch. I promise you, you don't want to miss out. So before we dismiss, we're going to read a word of benediction. If you'll stand up, uh, if we just skip down a little bit from what I read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You guys have a great Sunday. We'll see you next week.